our series uh, called Confronting Christianity and been dealing with a lot of different like heavy-hitting topics. And today is probably the most heavy-hitting topic we're going to discuss, the most controversial topic that we'll discuss. And the question is, how can a loving God send people to hell? This is a controversial topic debated for centuries, and we're going to solve it all in like 25 minutes. All right? So you ready? Are you ready to roll? Now, we know this is a difficult idea. The topic of hell is just a difficult concept to even think about. Um, It's why many people don't believe in it. It's the most controversial doctrine, I think, that Christians would say that most of them would say they believe in. Um, Now, here's how some people in history have viewed hell. Uh, This guy, there we go. This guy is Origen, which I just asked, does anyone really know what he looked like? I doubt it. This is a random photo they they probably ascribed to most ancient people back then. Uh, But that's what they thought he looked like, I guess. And um, anyway, he was one that said hell was a place where the wicked were purified. So you've heard of maybe the idea of purgatory that some might believe in. This is where this idea may have come from. I don't think that it's biblical, but that's what he thought. He thought that the wicked were purified in this place so they could then repent posthumously after they've died, and then they could find God after their death. Uh, Not a biblical idea, I don't believe. That's what he believed, though. And then this is a picture of, uh, a depiction of Dante's Inferno from his Divine Comedy. And uh, anyone ever have to read that, read through that, anybody? A few of you guys. I know who you are, yeah. Uh, But he's he's one of the first ones that, um, he he, he pictured hell under the surface of the earth. Probably the first one to think of that idea. That's also not a biblical idea either. Um, If you ever heard someone say something like, I was in the worst traffic jam and it was like the ninth ring of hell. Like, that's where this idea comes from. Okay, that's the idea uh, behind that. Um, now, uh, that's Dante's Inferno. And then um, next we have these famous theologians that um, they have some thoughts on hell. And uh, so, you know, 80s bands, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, listen, when I was a child of the 80s, and so... Uh, bands back then in the 80s, they had two things in common. They had, it was, it was hell and hairspray. Those two ideas were kind of sort of brought those bands together. Um, they sang and talked a lot about hell back then in their, in their music. Uh, so in their album, Let There Be Rock, they had these lyrics as, as they famously proclaimed. They're also the band that uh, famously wrote the song Highway to Hell. And so they had this celebration about the idea of hell, um, which many some groups and bands still do that today, of course. And then on a more serious note, um, there was this guy. Several, you don't know who this guy is, but this is a guy that um, was a famous, fairly famous in Christian circles, pastor, speaker, kind of a nationally renowned speaker in the Christian world, I guess. His name is Rob Bell. And he famously wrote this book on, on hell called Love Wins. And basically the whole book was kind of deconstructing the idea of how we think the Bible describes this concept of hell. And he implies in the book that nobody really ends up in a place called hell, but hell is really about the various hells on earth, like rape and genocide and injustice. And so I also would say that I think his ideas on the topic are not biblically sound, but he, I think he's led a lot of people astray in other areas of theology today as well. 
But you can see how throughout history, even like ancient and also modern, that people had these various views on the topic. Now, um, I do think I have to say this. I don't have this in my notes or on the screen for you, but just listen to what I'm saying here. I think you've got to be really careful that you don't allow the comic book or cartoon strip uh, or the, the, the cartoon version or the comic book strip version of hell be what you think of when you think of this idea. I think that that's one of the biggest, uh, I guess, disservices to us as a church. That that's where your mind goes when you think of this concept. Because, of course, we see it in popular culture. But that is not at all, I think, what the Bible puts before us when it talks about this, um, this idea of eternal separation from God. And so just keep that in mind as we go through uh, today's uh, discussion. Now, I know that most of us um, know we're supposed to believe in this idea of hell, but then we have all these emotions that are attached to it. And we think, well, how could, how could a loving God send someone to a place like this? Well, listen, hell is not some abstract concept. It's, it, it gets personal because you know people and I know people that have lived their life and never, never proclaimed that Jesus Christ is God, never given their life to Christ. And, and so it gets personal when you think about certain people that you know being eternally separated from God. And that's just a really horrible, awful thing for us to have to think about in this life, of course. It's hardest whenever you lose a friend or a relative who lived, a, in our eyes, a pretty good life, but they weren't really a follower of Christ. And we think to ourselves, really, like that person will spend eternity separated from God? Is that true? Now listen, I'm not asking you today to turn off, to turn your emotions off. If anything, we need to feel the weight, I think, of this topic. And so don't come at this with the mindset, like, I just can't think about it from an emotional perspective. Like, you need to think of it from that perspective as we address it. Because the goal today is not to walk out of here feeling good about hell. The goal is not to walk away and say, you know, the points Dave made were so, so on, on the spot, and, and so I feel much better about this idea. That's not really the point, I think, of a talk on this topic, is to walk out feeling better about this reality. It's not something to feel good about, but I think it's a necessary discussion. And so I want to start our discussion with a passage that doesn't mention hell or the concept. And it's Isaiah chapter 40. A couple of verses here where the prophet writes, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Now, why am I starting with a passage that doesn't even talk about the topic today? And here's why. Because there are things about God that we will not understand. If you, come at the, if you, if you look at the, the Christian faith and some of you look at God and you say, I don't understand everything there is to know about God, so I'm just going to throw it all out. That's what many people do with their faith. Well, right here in Isaiah, the Bible tells us that we will not comprehend everything about God. The Bible tells you 
that you won't know everything, understand everything about God's character and his goodness and his love for us. And it says it right here. You're not gonna, you, you can't comprehend everything there is to know about God. You just can't do it in this life. This passage refers to the heavens. And I think at times we forget how just amazing and big God really is. I'm always fascinated by when I, when I see pictures like this, pictures of space. So this is a recent image taken from the Webb Telescope. You may have heard about that. And these are spiral galaxies. Where they're seeing how stars are being birthed in these galaxies. And um, just amazing that these are like real photos and not just something that looks like an artist's rendering. But these are real infrared photos. And I've got a few more to show you here. And when you see pictures like this, that just show how big and amazing creation is way out there in space. It just blows your mind when you see pictures like this. And another passage in Isaiah says that God knows every star and that he calls each by its name. That he's named every single star, like in the whole universe. Do you know how many stars there are in the universe? Well, there are only 5,000 that are visible, visible to us with, I think, the naked eye or even like with a telescope that you might have at home. There are over 400 billion in our galaxy alone. They estimate that there are 125 billion galaxies in the universe. How they know this, I have no idea. Like, is there a guy at NASA whose job is to count? He just counts. That's his job. I have no idea how they know this. But they estimate this is a number they come up with. So we worship the God who made all this, this all-powerful, all-knowing, infinite in wisdom. We worship this God This made all these things, This created all these things. So just keep that in mind. Like, that's how big God is. He made all those things, all of creation. And then by comparison, my brain weighs three pounds. Your brain weigh, may weigh a little bit more than that, probably does. But our brains are fairly small by comparison. So this is the mind that we use to question the God who made all of this. That's what we do. We, we, we turn the tables on God. We make, Isaiah says it here, we, we, we make God into the student, and, and we become the teacher. We appoint ourselves the teacher, and we're going to teach God a thing or two about justice and what justice should look like in the world and for eternity. And so we can't turn the tables on God. So you might say it like this. We claim to know justice better than the one upon whom it is based. So most arguments against hell start with this assumption. I can't believe in a God who would fill in the blank. That's how we start conversations about these things sometimes. So beware the person who starts any conversation with that phrase. Can you think of how many people in the Bible could have said that, could have done that? Like think about Joseph. You know, I can't believe in a God who allowed me to spend so much time in jail. How about Daniel? I can't believe in a God who would allow Israel to live in captivity. What about Job? I can't believe in a God who would allow so much suffering in my life. Think of all the biblical characters that could have said, I can't believe in a God who would 
fill in that blank. And many of them stayed faithful and believed in God and grew in their faith because of some of those difficult circumstances. So what would you say it about today? What would your blank be? I can't believe in a God who. You see, that's a, that's a role reversal that Isaiah is warning against here. Because some things you and I will just not understand. And so I want to look at some common objections from skeptics. And maybe you've had these yourself. And sometimes these contradictions can, these, these, uh, these object, objections can contradict one another. So the first is this. I can't believe in a God who allows all this evil. So in two weeks, we're going to have a talk on evil and suffering. Like how can a loving God allow so much evil and suffering in our world. And whenever I do talks on this topic, I always mention this idea that if there is no God, then how do we know to call anything evil? If there's no God out there, then how do we even have the framework for like good versus evil if there is no God? But for many skeptics, just as they say this statement, I can't believe in a God who allows all this evil, they also might say this, I can't believe in a God of judgment. And so do you see the contradiction here? Because they're really saying, I can't believe in a God who judges evil. But wait a minute. You just said, I can't believe in a God who allows evil. So do you see how they contradict? Why does someone say this? Well, this goes back to the talk that Megan gave a couple weeks ago. Doesn't Christianity limit our freedom? Because many of us believe that we are free to choose our destiny, free to make our own path. And if there is a God out there somewhere, then he's just on the sidelines, just cheering us on for whatever we want our destiny to be. We see God as just, he's just cheering us on to live how we want to live, um, however we see fit to live it. But the question I have is where in history has that God, if that's the God that exists, where in history has that God revealed himself? This is the God that we want to exist, so we end up creating him, creating God in our image. And this is what we think he should be like. And so we determine that for ourselves sometimes. So anyone who holds this objection, I think is holding this objection in faith. And so I want just, just forget eternal judgment for a moment. Let's just look at this life in the here and now. When we look at this life, do we see judgment for sin? Yes, I think that we do. So when a husband or wife cheats on their spouse, are there natural consequences? Yes, there are. What about someone who's chasing addiction through alcohol and drugs or pornography? God has this way of, of weaving natural judgment into this life. And so what if, what if God weaving natural judgment into this life is really an act of his grace giving us a foretaste of eternal judgment to come. But he's giving you a chance to repent and to turn, to turn back to him. You see, if you're offended by the idea of a judging God, then I ask you, why aren't you offended by the idea of a forgiving God? You know, no one ever asked that question. We, we don't walk through life and say, you know, like, what's up with all this forgiveness? Like, that's not right. But if you go to um, other parts of the world, uh, if you talk to someone who's a Muslim in other parts of the world, do you know one of their biggest hang-ups with Christianity? 
It's not that God judges, but that God forgives. They don't understand that, many of them. And they especially don't understand, like, how or why God would sacrifice himself on a cross. They don't believe that God would stoop down to that level to do such a thing. So when you think of it in those terms, like, how can God do all this, have all this forgiveness? Because, listen, there are going to be some, some heinous people in heaven when we get there in God's presence. Like, people that right now you think, like, wait, that person, like, they're going to be there? Like, you won't think that when you get there because you'll be fully sanctified and you won't see things that way anymore. But in the here and now, there are people that you're like, wait, what? No. They're, wait, what? Huh? What? But listen, God is the God who forgives. But no one seems to take issue with that. So that's another uh, objection. Then we have a God of judgment can't be a God of love. You know, many will say this. They see God's anger and they see God's love at these two opposite poles. But this also doesn't hold up. Because I think of a simple example is parenting. For the parents in the room, you understand that sometimes when you really, really love someone, that sometimes you get angry. Like, not in a sinful way, but there can be some righteous anger sometimes as a parent. And loving parents sometimes get angry. I don't mean sinfully, but righteously. And they don't get angry despite their love. They get angry because of their love. So when I think of, uh, like, my own kids, like, when, when they were really small, we would say, hey, don't play out in the street because it's dangerous. And they'd always kind of want to, you know, play in the street. And so we're like, don't play. In the, there's danger out there. Don't, don't go to the street. And um, I don't have time to tell you the story, but you can ask Landon later. But later on in, the, in their life, they... They played in the street some, and it involved a, a bike accident and some broken teeth. He could explain it later on. But um, listen, when we said don't play in the street or be careful if you do, am I trying to steal their joy? No, I'm trying to increase their joy by having some rules and some boundaries. And so it's not just true of the parent-child relationship, but it's true of friendship as well. Some of you have friends that are ruining their own life maybe even right now, and it's making you a little bit angry because you really love them and you care about them. Your, your anger is a sign of love for that person. So Becky Piper, she writes this, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravish, ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. We respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers, far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love, hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference, like the I don't care attitude. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his, his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. Anger isn't the opposite of love. But if someone's destroying themselves and we love that person, we're going to have this righteous anger towards their sin. So when we say God is love, it can't mean that God loves everything. Because he doesn't love pride, cruelty, injustice, lying, murder. He hates these things. His judgment is a, is a weeding out of things that are trying to destroy us. You know, at times we try, to, we try to pull apart God's love and his judgment, but we can't do that. Think of the anger 
that you feel when you hear about like things like school shootings or you know, someone being abused or the slave trade or the Holocaust or global sex trafficking. Those things should make us angry. But whenever you analyze that anger, the root of it is love. The next uh, objection that people have is a loving God would not allow hell. Now, you might say, okay, I get it. For God to be loving, he gets angry sometimes so that we'll learn and grow just like a parent might. But that still doesn't explain hell, this eternal separation from God. That just just seems too harsh. I just can't believe in a God like that. And so if that's you, then let's turn to the words of Jesus. And these are the words that don't really ever make it on t-shirts or coffee mugs. Uh, But many people see the God of the Old Testament as different than the God of the New Testament. We might see the God of the Old Testament as, you know, mean and judgmental, but the God of the New Testament as somehow nice and gracious. It's not really true to think that way. But the only problem with that idea is the Old Testament itself, because we see grace all over the Old Testament. Other problem with that is Jesus, because Jesus talked about hell, and he talked about it a lot. Do you know that no one in Scripture talks about hell more than Jesus? And now most of us picture Jesus as this, I mean, the, thing, the, the images that you have of Jesus that have been put before us by some of the, sometimes the church and our culture are just pretty interesting because you see Jesus, you picture him in your mind, and you see those images. Maybe you saw them when you were a kid, um, some church picture of, of Jesus on a hillside. Um, teaching people, and he's always holding a baby lamb. Where did he get a baby lamb? Like, he was a rabbi. He probably never touched a lamb in his life, most likely. But we picture Jesus like that with that image. Like, he's just some, you know, bearded hippie walking around, just like doesn't say anything controversial. And, but there's this passage over in Matthew 13 where Jesus tells this parable about some wheat and some weeds. And the wheat, the wheat represents believers, but the weeds represent these unbelievers. In Matthew 13, it says this, verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. So the picture here is of believers and unbelievers living on earth at the same time together until judgment. And then we see judgment in this passage, but at first it seems a bit vague. So then Jesus explains in verse 40. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So the words that you just read, these words come from the most loving, the most compassionate man to ever walk on this earth. So how can a loving God send people to hell? Well, a loving God tells us the truth. A loving God gives us a warning. To not warn us would be unloving. 
So these verses sound hopeless, but then look at verse 41. I'll read it again. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. So this describes the final judgment against all evil. So just for a minute, just let's depersonalize this. Let's depersonalize evil for just a minute. So don't turn off your emotions, but let's just kind of depersonalize this idea of evil and just think about evil. Now, can we rejoice knowing that one day that God will bring an end to all evil? And I think the answer is yes. Can you rejoice? Can I rejoice knowing that one day God will bring an end to all evil? We can answer that in the affirmative. This is why whenever you go see a movie, and most of the time, it's about, all the time, it's about good conquering evil. And it's why we watch. Usually if a movie ends, you say, I don't like the ending. Well, it's probably because the bad guy won is why you don't like the ending of that movie. It just doesn't seem right. So in our, in our bones, in our DNA, there's this, it's like God has written it into our conscience. Even for the unbeliever would think the same way, that somehow good is supposed to triumph over evil. And it's written into us. Because one day, it's going to happen. There's a reason why you have the expectation, because one day, it's going to come to full fruition. And that's what's being described here. So just imagine that day when all evil, all wickedness is, is locked up for all eternity. So there's no more lying, no more cheating, no more stealing, no more divorce, no more murder, no more rape, no more drug abuse, no more child abuse, no more human trafficking, no more disease. All of that is just locked up for good forever. We ask the question, why, how can a good God send people to hell? Why wouldn't a good, why wouldn't a loving God send evil to hell? Paul Williams writes, hell is a loving necessity. It is a place in which evil will be locked up forever. In other words, God created hell to deal with evil. He made it to be the final inescapable prison in which all evil, all rebellion against God will be confined, never again to exert its poisonous influence. Given all the evil in the world, isn't it a tremendous reassurance to know that it does not go unnoticed by God? It is precisely because he's a God of love that there's a place called It's hard to think about hell and not be overwhelmed. But you know what else is overwhelming? The daily news. Like, I know you guys don't, like, y'all are at an age where you, like, watch the news. I get it. Like, when I was young, my dad wanted to watch the news. And I'd say, that's boring. Let's watch something that's fun. But I've noticed as you get older, you start to go, like, I'm going to watch the news. 
or I'm going to read the paper. You guys don't read the paper probably either. Except the, maybe the sports page. Maybe you read that. But listen, when you read the news or watch the news, it's overwhelming. It's hard to imagine God who allows hell, but it's harder to imagine it's harder, harder to imagine a God who allows evil to continue. And so if hell says anything, it's that one day God's goodness is going to triumph over evil. And hell will be the final victory over evil. But it wasn't his first victory. His first victory was the cross and then the resurrection. And so if you have a hard time with the idea of hell, then think about the cross. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Here then on the cross is all that makes hell into hell. Darkness, pain, isolation, sin-bearing, divine judgment, curse, alienation, utter darkness, separation from God. If we need to be convinced of the reality of hell, all we need to do is consider the cross. It is all there. So, so in the cross, Jesus is separated from the Father and from fellowship with the Father. So that we don't have to experience that separation. Jesus takes it upon himself. A good God gives a warning. A good God provides a way out. So if you're, if you're someone that considers yourself not yet a Christ follower, I say not yet because I'm hopeful and I'm praying for that. But you might say, you know, I think, you might think that God is good and that he would never send someone to hell. And you're right about his goodness, but his goodness also demands justice. And so either Jesus pays for our sins or we pay for our sins. And so I, mean, I encourage you, place your faith and trust in him and let him pay. He's offering that to you. Let him pay. Rebecca McLaughlin writes, On the cross, the one perfectly righteous, perfectly loving, perfectly innocent man, whoever lived, faced the full force of God's judgment, drank it down, and threw away the cup. In biblical shorthand, he went to hell. The choice we have is this, to face hell by ourselves or to hide ourselves in Christ. And so this is a choice that everyone is faced with. We're all faced with it. In Romans 1, it says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And this is talking about what can happen in this life when we decide to walk off into sin. Like not struggle with it, but like walk intently towards it. It says God gave them up here. So when we reject God, he has a way of handing us over to our sin and its consequences. So if we want freedom from God, we're free to have it. We're free to be selfish. We're free to exploit other people. We're free to steal and lie and hate. But in the end, we're also going to get freedom from God's goodness, freedom from his provision, his joy, his comfort, his protection. So God is, hell is God's way of giving us exactly what we want, which is freedom from himself. Hell is the final handover. Now, if you're someone that's a, a follower of Christ, then 
you might think that, you know, we don't really deserve eternal separation from God. Like, we just think we're not that bad. That's how we think of ourselves. We, we don't think of that we really deserve this eternal separation from God. But I think, again, if you look at the cross, it reminds us how lost we are apart from him, his provision for us in the cross. His death on the cross shows us how serious sin really is and what we deserve apart from Jesus. So Francis uh, Chan, he writes this. He says, we are bound by the words of the creator, the one who will do what is right, the one who invented justice and knows perfectly what the unbeliever deserves. God has never asked us to figure out his justice or to see if his way of doing things is morally right. He has only asked us to embrace his word and to bow the knee, to tremble at his word, as Isaiah says. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So you guys are going to go to your uh, breakout discussions. And listen, I understand.